Hi, everybody. Welcome to the ninth episode of When Women Preach. Today, we have two special guests with us who um, work in amazing nonprofit organizations, as well as preach in different spaces, including the church, but also um, in their nonprofit spaces and the community. First, we have Brianna Van Belzen, who works at Duke Chapel as the community officer. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, your role and how you got there? What were the steps you took? What were the experiences that led you there? I ended up being the community minister. Um, so I started working at Duke Chapel uh, part-time as um, the community ministry um, I, program coordinator. And that basically meant that I uh, worked underneath the director of community ministry to um, form relationships with nonprofits, to keep a portfolio, to do education events. And um, I came into that position, my divinity school friends, uh, especially Janet Shaw, who was the, the um, co-leader of Asian theology group while I was at divinity school for several years. And, uh, and she told me about the job and deeply encouraged me to apply, even though she knew I didn't want to be at Duke um, any longer. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I took a chance, looked at the job. I really, really love working at the intersections of faith and justice. I do pastoral care, I preach, help lead worship, but I also bring people together to learn um, about their own faiths and each other's faiths, to learn about justice issues, to act and do, um, and to just be present in spaces that are needed. Now let's move on to Joanne, who is the executive director of the Hispanic Theological Initiative, which helps guide doctoral students who are part of the Latinx community um, to hopefully build them up to be leaders in the academy. Could you tell us how you got there as well? Prior to coming to theological education at all, I was in banking um, that was my my career. I was moving and being promoted in the banking retail end of early 90s. And um, I attended a Presbyterian church. And as I was um, led to serve as a deacon and then an elder in the church, my pastor um, at the time, who now works at Princeton as well, Reverend Dr. Victor Aloyo Jr., um, he started to encourage me to consider uh, seminary education. So I decided to visit the school um, and just see what was being offered. Just didn't feel welcoming at all. I remember sitting at a table with a young woman and um, she just made me feel so like unwelcomed. And she was supposed to be one of the individuals that was welcoming the students at the school. And um, and he said, well, you know, he said, Joanne, I can tell you that if you make it in Princeton, you will make it anywhere. <laughs> you know, in my own personal life, I was struggling with my marriage at the time. And um, I was trying to discern whether I was going to stay in the marriage or uh, get a divorce. You know, although I tried counseling and everything, it just didn't work out. And so I took a big leap. I left my job. And I decided to go to seminary. And um, even while I was attending seminary, I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to serve in the church. I've always had this real um, reverence towards preaching. I don't take it lightly. So I was undecided. And as I was graduating, we had actually, we had a horrible situation. Somebody left a note on one of the students' door that said, I hope you drop dead a student that was... Um, 
had some illness and was Latino. I was so angry by that note. I was the one that actually found it on his door because I was bringing him something to eat. And, um, and I went right to the dean's office and I said, this is unacceptable. And then we went to the president. He was a student that was participating in the Hispanic Summer Program, which is a program that travels all over the United States and has faculty that teach um, Hispanic students. And we contacted director of the Hispanic Theological Initiative at the time, Daisy Manchado, who now teaches at Union. And she said, you know, we're happy to come and, and um, do a lecture at, um, at Princeton. I was the, the head of the Latinx Student Association. We had a wonderful event. Little did I know that behind the scenes, they were negotiating moving um, HTI to Princeton Theological Seminary. I, I was in my final year. Suddenly, I, I come across this opportunity that they were looking for an associate director. I was graduating. I needed a job. I needed a place to live at. And I had been interviewing with three churches. And every single time that I posed questions that were like challenging authority in these institutions, all of a sudden, the offer was off the table. So I applied to HDI and I, um, I got the job. And I've been here ever since 21 years as the director of the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Yeah. So what do I do in this position? Uh, Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I fundraise. I write grants. um, I'm a publisher for a peer-reviewed journal. I work with faculty to do the curriculum for all of our programming. I counsel students. And I'm also a Presbyterian minister, and I serve in a local church in Trenton, a full plate, and I love it. And I'm, I'm, I, I feel that this is the ministry that God has provided for me to do now. All of these things also count as ministry, too, as we had mentioned before when we were talking about this podcast episode. Um, I was wondering if you could go into more of how you view these things um, as your ministry, even if they're not like the typical, you know, pastor preaching every week at in front of the church every Sunday. I sometimes also have to help with fundraising and grants and serving on boards. And um, I, I consider my work full-time ministry. It might not be a traditional kind of ministry. I have a lot of pastor friends who sit in their offices and study scriptures all day and read commentaries and do pastoral care visits. And I do those things too. And I also do things like, um, you know, beyond church walls kind of work. So my congregants are students and worship attendees. They're people experiencing homelessness. Their family is grieving because their loved one has just been murdered by gun violence. Um, they're working on the front lines of justice. They're sex workers. They're academians. Um, I'm a university chaplain, a community minister, and a movement chaplain all in one. Um, so this means I pray with anyone and everyone Um, Pastoral care is staying after a community meeting to hear someone's story. It's reminding the mayor that he's responsible for everyone's health and wellness in the city and not just some people's. Um, It's bringing people a baked good when I know they're having a bad day. You've done this to me many times. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I have your bubble tea order memorized. Oh, my gosh. Um, um, It looks like marching for justice together and holding spaces publicly and privately for anger, pain, despair, doubts, anything when people are suffering. Um, I have to embody presence and relationship in ways that traditional pastors do not. 
Um, and I have to preach with my hands and feet yes. more than my mouth. I have to preach with my grant proposals and trainings and letters to state representatives. Um, and so, yeah, I, I consider all of it ministry because all of it goes to the glory of God. Yes. And um, I totally agree with Brianna. I th- and the other thing that I feel is that, um, first of all, what we do is what I feel that I do in the position that I'm in that God has called me to is that we're creating a space for people to understand how theological education and how our values as we shape theological education then serve in many different capacities. And I'm even speaking outside of the box of being in a ministry chaplaincy role or me leading in a seminary, a program to to um, prepare PhD students in religion and theology. I'm talking about leaders who have this consciousness, this just consciousness in them, these values, that when they go into any positions, whether it be a doctor, a surgeon, um, a lawyer, you know, a community worker, a restaurant owner, that they think about what they do as a vocation, as something that serves people, um, human life. And so anybody can have called themselves up there, what they do, a ministry. And so I don't, I don't, I don't think that this is any different. Like, let's say if I was tomorrow to leave this and go into banking, I don't think that I would stop being a minister in banking. If anything, I would trans those, those skill sets, those values are translatable and have to be translatable in those other positions of leadership. And then Brianna, I also have to say like what you were talking about in terms of like, you know, I'm doing ministry grant, you know, writing funds, uh, writing grant funds and delivering letters to representatives. I was like, wow, Brianna's preaching right now. <laughs> so It's funny because like one of the, one of the um, like people, I just, I spent part of the summer teaching like three or four people trying to start a nonprofit, how to do the basics of applying to and running a nonprofit, how to, how to do grants. Some of them were divinity students. Um, and it, it's because there's gun violence in our city. They wanted to stand vigil and witness uh, to prevent the gun violence and to build relationships and communities and to build like bridges across divides of like generational trauma and and like honestly turf wars and peacemaking. And peacemaking is something we're called to do, not just in the gospel, but throughout the Bible. And um, And so them just standing there is preaching. And so I absolutely took it as ministry. That was our Sunday school. Brianna's Grant Writing 101, How to Run a Board 101, <laughs> Fundraising 101, How to Keep the Government Off Your Tail 101. That is Sunday school. <laughs> yes. And we prayed. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering if you could um, talk about maybe how your non-traditional preaching affects your traditional preaching and like vice versa. Um, I, I was super uncomfortable preaching in traditional spaces. Um, I actually have to give myself a pep talk and I like kind of hyperventilate, even though I've, pre- I've been an interim pastor of four churches. I've been a youth minister. I'm a community minister and I've, I've preached more times than I can count. I've supply preached in multiple states. Um, I've, I've preached in a bilingual context. Like I, I should be like totally cool as a cucumber preaching in a traditional space. My favorite place to preach is on a porch. I have a I have a friend who is a minister does ministry off of his porch uh, here in Durham and he invites me to preach sometimes 
and we sing a hymn and we, we read the scripture and then the preacher can preach whatever style is best. And I really love having to dig deep into scripture for that kernel of wisdom and God's truth and deep in myself to find a place of hope that I can share with the, the people that are coming to the porch because that porch is where there's the most violence and the most poverty in all of Durham. And that porch is literally at an intersection, at a crossroads where people no one else wants in this world come to be in communion together, to be fed, to be clothed, quite literally, and, and to be loved and, and to be seen as human. And I have the great, deep, wonderful privilege and honor of getting to share the gospel with them and worship with them and hear their prayers and hear their sermons, the sermons of their lives. Like, that's beautiful. And that's something that I want to carry with me into the traditional space that is Duke Chapel and into the less formal spaces that I preach in other various contexts. I'm with you on that one. I'm not comfortable ever with preaching. I don't think I've ever been comfortable with the formalized way. But I feel that we preach, the preaching is more than just a word. You know, I have heard the most eloquent, eloquent sermons, you know, in Princeton Theological Seminary and other, you know, academic settings. And I've seen that same person get off that pulpit and be not live out the gospel. So for me, it's really important to see both the, the, the combination of both. And not that I'm expecting somebody to be perfect because we all sin, but, you know, live out what you preach for me is really important. So I feel that my best example of preaching is how I live, how I lead this program, how I support the scholars, how I listen to them, how I love them, how I learn from them. You know, lately I've been using three the three L's, and I realized that these are really important for me. It's love, deep love, deep listening, and deep learning. Because we have to realize that we're always learning. If we want to be true um, um, carriers of the gas- gospel, we have to understand that things change. Um, and that we have to understand that we have to learn from those changes. Sometimes, you know, why are we in such a horrible predicament right now? It's because people have not learned how to interpret scripture and really look at it in this context. We're in a different context. And the gospel is not the same that it was 200, 2,000 years ago, or even 200 years ago. And so we have to learn to listen. We have to learn to even learn from the people that we least expect to learn from. Like my own daughter has taught me so much, you know, listening to her. And you would think, well, what does a 16, a lot, a 16-year-old child has a lot to teach you, right? Um, a five-year-old child has a lot to teach you. A dog has a lot to teach you. You know, I mean, everything in life, everything in life has something to teach us and we have to be willing to listen to that. We have to be willing to love in the midst of deep hatred and 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 challenges. And we have to be able to um, to listen deeply to our surroundings and what's happening and be critical of what we what we um, listen to. So for me, preaching that's just a very small aspect of preaching when you get up on a pulpit and you prepare a sermon. And I have deep respect for people that do it and can live it out. Deep respect for those people. But when you're not living it out to me, I have some real challenges with that. Um, I wanted to backtrack a little bit and actually ask, you both mentioned that you feel more comfortable doing your non-traditional preaching in the spaces that you occupy outside the church. 
versus, you know, approaching this formalized space of preaching. And I was wondering, does that have anything to do with being um, Brianna Indonesian American and Joanne um, being a Latina woman? I was actually thinking while Joanne was talking about something my sister Jolanda said, which I, I think you know Jolanda, Joanne. Um, she's she's always talking about like Santeria and La Bomba and the relationship between the Bomba dancer and the drummer and 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 that beat um, and how you have to communicate well with each other in this very specific context because you're also not just communicating with each other, you're communicating with the world around you and with the crowd and and the whole thing is this giant contextual communication. Um, and so I'm still exploring my voice as a preacher. Um, I was told not to make waves my whole life, um, even though my mom would stand up and fight for us. Um, and I grew up mostly when I did go to church, which wasn't often in black churches. And so no one in the black church understood my identity as an Asian American. And no one in the white churches I've ended up working in understand my identity as a person of color, a woman of color, an Asian American, an Indonesian American, a mixed race American who's also indigenous. Um, and I'm expected to fall into this context. And so I'm still learning how to be my whole self in these spaces. I'm learning the sound of my own second gen, multi-ethnic complex, gender fluid, queer child of God the mother voice Whoa. in the pulpit. That's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and so what I found is, is in this like non-traditional context, I'm learning that myself, wherever and however that pulpit is, is, is this voice, like being able to use it is liberating and terrifying and exhilarating because God always has something to say. And God shared a message with me for the world. And that's poetry. That's poetry. Like mm -hmm. our voices and our preaching are poetry. And, um, and it's beautiful. And we have the voices of our ancestors and our communities with us and the Holy Spirit moving us. And I feel freer in non-traditional context because I already am in a space that is queered yeah. and, and turned and is not literally in an architectural space that has been constructed on, not sometimes by whiteness, but not always. It's already pushing the bounds. It's already at an intersection. And so being in a traditional pulpit is something that I still feel exhilarated by once I get over my initial nervousness, but it's something I'm always struggling between the conforming to the context of the people I'm preaching to because they have to be able to receive and hear the word in a way that they understand versus what is coming up out of me in a rushing and flowing stream, what's bubbling up and screaming to come out. And that's what I can shout on the streets. That's what I can, I can speak into spaces bit by bit. I don't know if you were at um, the TED talk I did last February for Asian theology group when we had Gail Bantam song and several other people come to the divinity school. But that was my first time sharing a slam poem in public. I write slam poetry in my free time. That's right. And yeah, I used to teach slam poetry to my students when I was an English teacher. Um, and I, I'd written that poem. But that was a sermon I'd written like a year before in slam poem form. And I was like, God, I don't know who this sermon is for, but I know you want me to preach it. Thank you, because you're absolutely right, Brianna. Um, I have learned to understand 
and to, to help. So I think it's an important understanding to have, not just for myself, but for my community. We are in spaces that are not welcoming um, to us. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how much they say that they want us here, they really are not ready. Some are not ready for us and some say they want us. And then once we're here, they don't want us. And I am not afraid to say that because I'm not here to please institutions. Mm. I'm here to do a work that I feel called by God to do. Mm -hmm. That's number one, to understand the context in which you're in. Number two for me has been that since a child, I stuttered, started to gain my voice in in my mid thirties, really. And, And like Brianna says, it takes a while for you to get there. It's just like, you know, when you when a child's growing up, it takes a while to develop anything in life, right? So it's 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 having compassion for yourself and for you to understand that this is not going to happen overnight. So it's really hard to preach in a context in which your voice is already not welcomed, and also has to be super eloquent or fit into that context for it to be accepted. And then not having time sometimes to prepare or change yourself into that context because you're trying to do so many other pieces of ministry. And, um, and when you're struggling, when you're in a, um, in a situation where there's always something coming at you, like it doesn't feel like a safe space. It never feels like a safe space. These are all the different challenges. That that women and I I don't like the term color because everybody has a color. So Asian women have, Latina women have, African American women have, and it creates a lot of stress on the mind and the body. And I'm I'm I am really surprised when women who really understand where they stand don't get sick because what I see is they end up getting sick. We have to stop, catch our breath, and understand the context that we're in. And how do we want to step into that context? One of the things that Latinx women and other women from other ethnic groups have to understand is how to gain your voice, how to love that voice, and how to protect that voice. Because the color of eloquence that you mentioned is always white. And I think eloquence and redefining what is eloquent, uh, it doesn't have to be white-centric eloquent. And um, for me, my whatever you want to call it, accent, Puerto Rican, Princeton, um, New York Rican accent, as long as you understand what I'm saying, I'm going to go for it. And not feel like we have to shape ourselves into distort ourselves, because I think it's really like a distortion of who we are. A distortion and an erasure. Exactly. I always feel like I have to take pencil, a pencil eraser to the lines of myself to fit into a space. There's already plenty of spaces that try to do that to us. The last thing we need to be doing to ourselves is that. What we have to learn to do is love our full package. This is a beautiful, amazing package. And we are enough. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done both by, uh, you know, people like Latina women and Asian American women and black women and indigenous women and, you know, other women. Um, but also um, a lot of work by those oppressors too. And actually um, I had a request for a question by someone on Instagram who follows Isaac, who wanted to know how can men, particularly, you know, Asian American Latino men support and empower their fellow 
Asian American, Latina women preachers, or like you said, ministers, whether it be a nonprofit or traditional ministry. They need to give up space, man. They need to get aside. They need to open the doors, usher us in. They need to tell us what's behind that door before we get there. It's one of my favorite things I've learned my first year of ministry was as paid ministry was because um, that's another that's another conversation <laughs> um, was there's a difference between mentorship, which which, first of all, we don't get enough of in any of those categories. That's exactly right. And sponsorship. And sponsorship is when somebody doesn't just sit you down and have a nice conversation with you over coffee and listen to you cry and maybe give you some advice. No, sponsorship is there's these job opportunities. I will be your reference. Here's this speaking engagement. Here's this paid thing. Here's um, blah, 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 blah. You know what? I'm going out of town for a week. And it's, it's reaffirming women's voices at, at the table. Like if you're going to even like, if we even make it to the table, or inside the room is saying, hey, you know what? This person needs the same things we do. What I've decided to do is that the position I'm in, I can open those doors for other people and keep them wide open. If I'm going to be put in a gatekeeper middle management position, like the Asian American stereotype I am, (laughs) as the first Asian American woman to be a minister at Duke Chapel, I'm going to hold those doors wide open as long as I can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's what men need to do. I think men need to shut up and give us space. I think they need to believe us. They need to question their own reality. If they find themselves being fragile and disagreeing with us, they need to take a take a time in with themselves. The other thing that I think is really important is for us to be thinking about next. Who's next? You know, we have to get out of this falsehood that we're the only ones that can do. Any leader, any really, for me, an excellent leader is about building other people setting it up so that someone else can step into that role and do it just as well or better than you. And I think that that's one of the things that I thank God for for this space, because I hope that that's what I'm doing at HGI. I hope that, like Brianna said, building on different networks, opportunities, um, and and legacy in terms of HGI moving forward beyond me, you know, that if even if I, if I stay on, I do something else and let someone else Fill, fill these shoes and more people and advance it and grow it because there's too many people out there that need what it is that we do. And um, we don't have to hog up these spaces. Yeah. I really appreciate what you said about building a legacy. We often have to think about the future, but also look for, you know, signs of hope or even like visions of hope. Do either of you have a story of, um, either yourself or someone finding that resilience or finding that opportunity for the future, you know, even if it doesn't look like it'll manifest soon right now. I am seeing hope being embodied by these two women. Yes. You are the embodiment of hope that we need. So I just want to thank you. I work in a a space that has so much pain and suffering, like all the time. Like there was literally like blood crying up from the ground, right? And and um, my job became a million times worse with COVID and with the uprising, like protests and things like that, because um, that's part of my work. And I had to, and I had I had several personal losses at that time. I had to come back from that somehow. And what what happened was, I had to remember that the most of my work comes from from people. Like my hope is. It's one, a discipline, but two, 
it's it's something I see every day. I see God everywhere. Like I I see people continuing to survive and persist constantly. And that includes um, this one person I know who has like eight or nine chronic illnesses, was homeless several years ago, almost lost her kids, uh, lives with someone with addiction. Um, this person is the leader of a nonprofit in our community. And that happened like this year. And as soon as, as soon as she was promoted, COVID-19 happened. She's a black woman. And George Floyd and all of that like came to a head. People are starting to run around here with guns and flags more so than usual. Like it's dangerous. People are sick. She caught COVID and she she had COVID and was calling me about something at her nonprofit because she was not going to let people starve on her watch and and be homeless on her watch. And she usually encourages other people. And what I found hope in is literally her fortitude that even when she's feeling at her most broken, she still has faith that we're all going to get through this. She's always telling me, Brianna, it's temporary. We're going to get through this. We're going to survive. People came before us and people came after us. And God is always with us. And if that's not a word, I don't know what it is. Wow. Every day I am encouraged by my, by the scholars that we support and the resiliency that they show in the midst of some really challenging situations. Um, and I think that in 2016, when this election happened, my heart was discerning, oh gosh, this is not good. And I didn't have a full-blown breakdown, but I spent several years, um, several of those years in and out of just some real back and forth emotionally. There's been some real challenging episodes here that um, had to um, deal with and, and, and work through. And seeing the scholars, I had one scholar who lost his job, lost his home. It was just bad and um, came back from it. Um, two family members died in the same year back to back and graduated and now is a professor, you know, at an institution and won one of the book prizes of HGI. So every story um, has its challenges and um, it gives me hope when I hear them. But one of the things that I decided to do now for myself anyway, this is not the first time that this happens in this country or and maybe even in other nations is even worse. And it takes they live like this day in and out for years and years and years. And people still find a way to continue to live and have joy. And so what we need to do is to learn what's the space that God has called us to occupy. Do that to the best of our ability and then surrender the rest to God because we're not called to be God. And, and that's a misconception that sometimes we have in ministry that we feel that we're going to save the world. We're not called to save the world. God, That's God's job. Our job is to be faithful to what God has called us to do. Yeah. And I'm continue to do the space that God has given me to occupy to speak for justice for all people. Because the work that I do is not just for Latinx communities, it's for, for all communities. Yes, thank you. In summary, for expanding the boundaries of preaching space, the world is our parish. Isaac is heading a new initiative called Pastoral Lab which will create opportunities for women to preach from their own hermeneutics and give them the financial organizational skills for them to flourish in their ministries. If you'd like to help us with this initiative, 
please consider donating at isaacweb.org.